Timothy. Maybe one of those big books that you're very familiar with. It may be one that uh, you may not know a whole lot about. It certainly is very rich in what it teaches. And I, I would hope that in our short study so far that we've begun to appreciate the depth uh, of, of Paul's understanding and his teaching through Christ. Uh, and, and I hope it's challenged us to, to, to go to higher places when it comes to the things of God and to go deeper into the things of God which is something that I want to encourage you to do every week. I know it's hard to do. I struggle with it just like all the rest of us do. We can always find other things to do to fill our time. Uh, But I would encourage all of us, including me, to have those regular times every single day where you're feasting on his words and you're contemplating what it means and you're taking it and applying it to your own life. Uh, and you are praying on a regular basis. And I hope that all of you have a prayer list of people that you're praying for regularly. And you can rest assured that your name is on the list of at least some other people. Paul began chapter 2. This is where we are. He began chapter 2 emphasizing how important prayer is, that there's a primacy of prayer, that prayer needs to precede really everything that we do as believers, everything that we do as, uh, as a church. And he encouraged uh, those that he, uh, Timothy that he was writing to and the, the, those that Timothy has uh, some influence on in his teaching, uh, that prayers and entreaties would be lifted up uh, along with thanksgivings on behalf of all People, in essence. Uh, and, and I would challenge us with the idea that really what Paul is talking about here is all sorts of people. In other words, don't let your, your prayers be restricted to a particular group or anything like that. Very often what we do is we pray for the people that we're closest to, the people that we love. They're right there at the top of our, of our prayer list, and we may have others there, but these people even take primacy in our prayers very often. But what Paul is challenging is this, is to go beyond that. To be in prayer for all sorts of people. And he emphasizes this, in particular, those who are in places, positions of authority. Because they have the ability to have a great influence upon other people. And they have a lot to do with the quality of life very often that others has have. And he brought... Kings uh, to their attention in particular, and we talked how that might apply particularly to our president. We prayed for our president in, in worship a couple of weeks ago. And we talked last week about how these things, these sort of things, are very pleasing to God. It's not that he just says, do it, but he takes great pleasure in the fact that we're encouraged to do it. We actually do it, and it brings pleasure and joy to him uh, in that Last week, I'm not sure I did a very good job of accomplishing my end, but what I was doing last week was trying to encourage all of you guys to understand that everything that we learn, everything that we understand that comes from Scripture needs to be weighed in the balance of Scripture. 
In other words, you understand this, that sen- particular sentences sometimes can be interpreted and understood in different ways, right? Some things that you just hear people say. You, they may say one thing and you hear something else. Now, I want you to know something. I'm not saying here that there's any problem with Scripture, but when you're talking about sinful people like we are, there is a problem. The problem is always with us. I just want to challenge you with this idea that, and let me tell you, this applies to absolutely everything that you believe that is taught in Scripture. It all has to be weighed in the balance of the rest of it to have the right understanding of what God's intention is. Do you follow me? Based upon that... I really believe this, and this is not my opinion. This is what I've been convicted of because of my study of Scripture and because every single Reformed person that I know of, theologian, pastor, whatever, this is how they understand this passage. This is what they understand it to say. We talked about in verse uh, four, how we read the word here, here from uh, in New American Standard, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is a, a, is a proof text that's very often used by people who really, they, basically they have this idea that God sent Jesus into the world to live and die to make salvation available to people. And now, as to whether we have it or not, is completely and totally up to us. And so what he's doing now is he's sitting in heaven, he's wishing and he's wanting every person, every single person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a sovereign God to you? Some people would say, well, it sounds like uh, Keith is saying that God is not all loving. That's not what Keith is saying at all. But what I'm telling you is this. If if that is your understanding of what this particular verse says, I think you need to weigh it in the balance of Scripture. And when you do that, I think you might come to at least a little bit different conclusion. And let me tell you something. There are at least two other perfectly legitimate interpretations of that verse. One of those is this, is that just as we said before, that that Paul was not giving the edict to the church that the church must pray for absolutely every single person that ever breathes air. That while Paul is encouraging there is, again, that, that they, be, they have a prayer life that goes way beyond. And it breaks down social barriers and it breaks down racial barriers. And you're praying for the young and you're praying for the old and you're praying for the black and you're praying for, praying for the white. It's also possible that what Paul is saying here literally is this is that God is wishing, God is desiring, God is wanting a great many people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you may agree with that or you may not agree with it. But, again, we have to weigh everything in the balance of Scripture.
Because let me say this. What I would say to you is this. is When I weigh that statement in the balance of scriptures, what I find is this. Is that when God truly desires, as we think desiring means, or we think about wanting, we think about wishing, that when God does that, absolutely every single person is saved. That's the means by which they are saved. That's what this says. Okay? Which means this. means that if you're saved, you're saved because God saved you. He decided to do absolutely every single thing that had to be done to make it not only possible for you to come to salvation, but to make you a believer. To change your wicked, evil heart. To accept and receive the gospel of grace. And when we understand that that is true, who can brag? Who can boast? Who can say, look at me, I'm a believer. I'm, in a sense, I'm better than you are because I believe and you don't. Because I'm saved and you're not. When Paul talks about the gospel of grace in Ephesians, what he says is this. Is this is the way he's got it. God has done it for a lot of reasons. But one of that is because when you understand this, there is no room for anybody to be prideful or boastful or think they're better than anybody else. Let's move on. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Years ago, brand new pastor, I used to go to the Chamber of Commerce breakfast. They have them every month in Dunellen, and I stopped going years ago because I really didn't feel like I was accomplishing a whole lot. Uh, but I was sitting there one morning talking with someone, and, you know, we were in a booth, and there was a booth next to us, and I overheard this conversation going on in the next booth. And it just really caught my ear because the person was being very loud, you know, almost, almost bellowing out so that everyone in the whole restaurant could hear what he was saying. Uh, but he started talking about the idea that uh, the, 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 the idea of the, the Trinity, that you know, the, the picture or idea of God that the Christians celebrate and recognize, was actually invented by the church. That it's not really in the Bible. That the Council of Nicaea, when it came together, actually invented this whole idea. Of the Trinity, and, and he was saying this. He said they talk about they believe in one God, but they actually really believe in three gods: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can imagine that he was a Jehovah's Witness. Now I don't know that for certain, but see, this is one of the reasons. This is the reason why we consider Jehovah's Witnesses to be a cult is because they do not recognize and acknowledge the Trinitarian God that you and I understand and believe with all of our heart is taught and is brought in the Bible. Notice here. There is one God. 
Not many gods, not a number of gods, not a god for this and not a god for that, not a god for the Jews and a god for the Christians and one for the Chinese and one for this group of people and one for that group of people, but there is one God, there's only one God, and every person on this earth lives under the rule of that one God. And not only this earth, but all of creation, the heavens and the earth, Obviously, Moses believed that there was one God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, what's part of what's called the Shema. Obviously, Paul believed it because he says it right here that there is one God, period. Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that they may know thee. Did you ever think about that, that that's really the goal for you and I in eternal life, is that we would know God, the God that truly is, the God that exists, the one God, the true God, the only God. Now, how much do you know about this doctrine of the Trinity? I mean, what is this? If someone asks you, you're a Christian, say you're talking with this fellow, and he asks you, can you tell me what the doctrine of the Trinity is? Could you do that? Could you tell him in so many words what your understanding is of the Trinity? Let me just tell you what it is very simply. That there is one God in essence. Three God or three persons in that one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You look at the shorter catechism. Question number five says this. So kids, you may know the answer to this. So speak up if you know it. Are there more gods than one? What's the answer? No. I mean, you don't even know what the catechism says, and you know what the answer is, right? No. There's only one, the living and true God. Then the next question, question six, how many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now let me ask you something. Do you understand all that? There's one God, but at the same time, there are three persons of that God. They all have the same essence. They all have the same glory. They all have the same power. They're equal in every single way to each other. Does that make sense to you? Does it? Do you believe it? Why? Why would you believe that? If you read that in a comic book or something like that, you wouldn't think that was reality for a minute now, would you? So why do you believe it? Because it's taught in Scripture, guys. That when you take all the Scriptures and you put them together and you study all these different aspects about God, the Trinity is the only thing you conclusion you can come to. And let me just tell you something. It's unlike anything there is. Forget about analogies. Let me tell you, every analogy that you can come up with to explain the Trinity is heresy. Every one of them. 
there, it's impossible for you and I to be able to use a little picture to, to help people understand what the Trinity is. And very often, by using these little pictures, we, we, we lead people into heretical ideas about God. But we believe in the Trinity for this reason, because we've weighed all of what this says about God in the balance. And that's what it says. That God is one in essence, but three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes today we talk about cult religions. And and you may not realize this, but they all have roots in Christianity. In other words, the founders of all these different cult religions, that we, these religions we classify as cult religions, they had roots in, in the Christian faith. But the end result is this, is what they do is they pervert the God of the Bible. They pervert the God, a God that's described to us through the Scriptures. I'm not even going to tell you which religion believes this stuff, but you'll probably be able to figure it out. That the Father is truly God. The Son, on the other hand, is if he is a God, he's a lesser God. And in essence, he's a created being. He was created by God the Father. He also had a brother. His name is Lucifer. This particular religion, they also believe that Jesus is already returned and he's existing now in the world in an invisible form. That the second coming of Christ has actually taken place already. Where does that leave us? Also, that the Holy Spirit is not God at all. See, this is a reason we would not consider these people to be Christians because they have an entirely different understanding of who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit than you and I do. And that the church has through the history of the church. Let me just tell you something. You need to be very leery of people who come along and have a new thought about particular things that have been very well established and understood by the church for generation after generation and after generation after generation. There are some things that maybe some people here today believe they are taught in the Scripture, which I could very easily tell you and show you they just aren't. But false understanding about things that, that, that very large numbers of Christians have bought into today. Why? Because they haven't weighted in the balance. They hear a pastor say something, they hear someone preaching, and, 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 and their thing is this I've heard people say this my, my preacher preaches from the Bible every week, and my preacher wouldn't lie to me, he would not mislead me. So I believe it. Tell you what I would love to see would be a church full of Bereans who on Sunday immediately after church would go home and pull out their Bible to make sure what Pastor Keith said this morning truly is scriptural. 
There's one God. There's also one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus. Mediators are people who stand in the middle between two parties and bring mediation or arbitration between the two. We understand that in our fallen nature that, uh, that we have sinned, and we sin, sin greatly, not only individually but corporately as people. We know that we're guilty. See, there's this great chasm created between holy God and man where man is in his fallen state. It's a chasm that would be impossible for anyone to cover who's not both God and man. See, this is one of the very clear teachings in Scripture, and that is that Jesus Christ is both divine and he is human. He is another. He's absolutely unique. We talk about Jesus as one person, but he has two natures. One is a divine nature. The other is a human nature. What I'm challenging with this morning is the idea that 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 is absolutely essential. It's an absolute necessity to make salvation for you and I even remotely possible. Now, I'm not saying it's just a good idea that Jesus is both. What I'm telling you is if it were not true, it could not happen. Let me ask you this. Do you think if there was some alternative pathway that would achieve exactly the same thing that Jesus did in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven, do you think the Father might have chosen that one if it meant that his Son would not have to come and live as a human and die? And I'm telling you, is it happened the way that it did because it's the only way that it could possibly Jesus says it very clearly in these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one ever has. No one ever will. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony in his own time. Now, we all know what a ransom is, right? Ransom is what's paid. Very often when someone's been kidnapped or captured, people will pay a ransom to buy their freedom. It's the same kind of thinking going on here in this particular word. Do you know what the biggest ransom paid ever is thought to be? It might surprise you. Ever hear of a guy named Pizarro? 
He's the, the Spanish conquistador who defeated the Inca Indians. He had captured their head guy. And they paid, the people paid a ransom of a room filled up with gold. And they estimate today that it probably was around $2 billion to ransom this guy. Now, Pizarro was a really wicked guy because what he did is he took the booty and he killed the guy anyway. There are other kinds of ransoms going on today. You've heard that I was you know, watching the Internet, and they're advertising for this software you know, to protect you from ransomware. What the heck is ransomware? Just a new application of this, this, this idea that, uh, that you pay something to set someone free or prevent this from happening or that happening and you know, so on and so on and so on. But I just want us to think for a minute this morning how big was the ransom that God paid for you? How big was the ransom that God paid for me? How valuable was it? That God the Father, and just remember this, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they've existed eternally. If you want to know what real love looks like, just imagine the love between those three persons of God. It is pure. It is absolute. There are no imperfections in it whatsoever. There is no self-centeredness in it whatsoever. It is all-encompassing, pure love. That is their relationship with each other. You need to understand that this would have been a weird concept in the days of Paul because so many of the people believed not only in one God, they believed in multiple gods, right? Well, you had the God of the Jews, you had the gods of the Romans, you had the gods of the Greeks, and so on and so on. And very often what you would find in these I- the ideology of these folks would be that these gods would be in contest with one another, opposing one another, sometimes battling each other. See, that's not what we find in the God of the Bible. It's absolute unity, absolute harmony between those three persons. They've never done anything that disagrees with either or all the other two, ever. Not a thought, not an action, anything. How important are your children to you? We're fortunate to have some of our grandkids here. How important are your grandkids to you? I mean, what, do you, what would be the decision? Do you, do, and, and I would, don't imagine it would take you very much time to come to the conclusion if it was a choice between your life and their life that you would very freely, willingly give your own life that they would be able to live, right? If we're talking about one of your children or one of your grandchildren, that's how dear the, our loved ones are to us very often. 
And people have made that sacrifice. There will be people today that will make the sacrifice of their own life to save their children's life. Happens all the time. But what about this? What if about someone asked me to sacrifice the life of one of my children or my grandchildren for them when they did not deserve it in any way, shape, or form? Can you imagine the emotion of God the Father sending his Son into this world for a purpose? And that purpose was to do many things, but one of the principal ones was to suffer. Can you imagine the Son doing what he did? His willingness to be the ransom. This is the whole point, guys. And that is this. Jesus is the ransom. And it was a ransom that had to be paid. Without it being paid, there would be salvation for absolutely no one. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the ransom that was paid that our sins would be forgiven, that we as prisoners would be set free, that the captives would be released from the prison of sin and its consequences. I would imagine some people in this room don't really think they're worth a whole lot. And it could be that you grew up in one of those situations where you were constantly told by other people that you were really worthless that you had no real value. But. You know, sometimes but is a bad word. Sometimes but's a good word. Now, usually it's an excuse coming, but this is not an excuse. But if. The magnitude of the ransom is a measure of how important we are. What does that tell us? In other words, you've made, people may tell you you're worthless. You may feel like you're worthless, but what I'm telling you, if Jesus died for you, then you are infinitely valued. to God more valuable than you can possibly even begin to imagine his love for you is perfect his love for you is is immeasurable it's incomprehensible God appears to believe you're worth a very great deal. Did 
Does that make you proud and boastful? Puffed up? I hope not. What it really ought to do is humble the mess out of all of us. Bring us to a death of humility that we didn't even know existed. Guys, that's the God of the Bible. The true God. The living God.